0: Welcome to the Spark Weekly. I'm Scott Lamar. Coming up on the program this week, the Government Reform Group Fair Districts PA describes Pennsylvania State Legislature as dysfunctional and unproductive. Also on the show, best-selling author Harry McLean talks about his new book, Starkweather, the untold story of the killing spree that changed America. If you go to Government Reform Group Fair District PA's website, There's a photograph of the Pennsylvania State Capitol with a drawing of a crack down the middle. It represents a state government that the group calls broken. A legislature or law or lawmakers that make few laws is what Fair Districts blames for what they call Harrisburg's dysfunction. As example, Fair Districts says that during this legislative session, more than half the bills that passed one chamber unanimously weren't addressed in the other. They say only about 7% of bills introduced ever make it to the governor's desk. Carol Cuniholm is the chair of Fair District's PA. She joins us on The Spark today. Carol Cuniholm, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Earlier this month, I was talking with uh, pollster Burwood Yost about the latest Franklin and Marshall College poll, and I asked him about issues in the poll that had consistent, overwhelming support that the legislature doesn't address or they haven't passed. You reached out to me saying there are a lot of examples. First of all, why did you feel compelled to reach out? And what are some of those issues?
1: Well, we have a team of volunteers. Fair Districts PA is a grassroots organization. We're nonpartisan. We're all volunteers. And we have folks who are busily studying our state legislature and listening to podcasts like yours. Um, We started to look at redistricting reform back in 2016. And um, what we discovered was that reasonable reforms that had broad public support really go nowhere. We had uh a bill in 2018 that had 110 co-sponsors. That's a very healthy majority in the House. And we saw that bill get blocked by a committee chair who who broke the legislative rules to have a meeting to amend the bill without even giving his colleagues time to read his amendment. and And we began to talk with legislators and former legislators who said the system is really broken and that there are many important reforms that are not able to pass simply because of the legislative rules. So you mentioned that um, photo with the cracked Capitol. We actually started something called the Fix Harrisburg Campaign and we have a website specifically about legislative rules. If you look for FixHarrisburg.com, then you'll see that photo, the FairDistrictsPA.com website is about redistricting. The FixHarrisburg.com website is very much about a broken legislative process.
0: What bill is it that you were talking about that had 110 sponsors? We
1: had a bill, House Bill 722. It was introduced by... Representative Eric Rowe, a Republican from Chester County, and Democrat Steve Samuelson, a Democrat from Bethlehem, PA. And it had 110 co-sponsors from both parties. Um, We thought, we're golden, we're in great shape, um, and it just got mashed. And then we had a bill in the Senate, again, that had quite a lot of support from both parties, and it actually moved out of committee with some pretty substantial amendments and then got saddled with another constitutional amendment on the Senate floor at the last minute. And when it went to the House, it got buried under over 600 Amendments and never got a got a got consideration. So we've seen lots of different ways to kill a bill. We haven't seen many ways to move a bill, but we've seen that there are many, many, many ways to kill a bill.
0: What did those two, two pieces of legislation, those two bills, deal with? What were they trying to do?
1: Those bills were trying to amend the Pennsylvania State Constitution to create an independent Citizens Redistricting Commission. I have to say, I am not, I have never been a person deeply involved in politics. I was a youth pastor, and as a youth. I was perplexed at the disparities in school funding between communities that I worked with that were very poor and didn't have school libraries, didn't have school counselors, didn't have school auditoriums, all the things that you would think a poor community desperately needs, they didn't have them. While I had also worked with kids in very affluent school districts who had everything, counselors following them around, asking them, where are you applying to college? And I just I thought, just on a purely economic level, this makes no sense. And so I began trying to understand that. And the more I looked into that, the more I discovered gerrymandering, Pennsylvania redistricting contributes to an unaccountable state legislature. Um, So got involved in starting Fair Districts PA and from there have gotten involved in looking at our state legislative process.
0: Now, you use words like dysfunction, unproductive, needs fixing to describe this legislature. Those are pretty damning descriptions.
1: Yes. and, And the thing is, it doesn't need to be that way. When we start comparing, and I think many of our legislators do not compare their their chamber with chambers in other states. Pennsylvania is among the the few full-time legislatures, among the most costly, probably the most costly legislature because they have the third highest uh, salary, base salary for legislators, but also one of the largest legislatures in the country. Um, One of our volunteers is quite sure that it costs a million dollars a day to run our state legislature, given what she can discover. And we are in the very, very bottom in terms of states, in terms of bills passed per session, or in terms of percent of bills that are introduced that are enacted. So bottom, you know, down in the bottom five, normally, we we are there. And there are states that have Um, Very short, very short sessions. We're we're looking at Virginia as one. Virginia's session is about 30 days. They gavel in in January. They're done by mid-March. They passed 800-something bills last year, while Pennsylvania passed 77. And people were talking about Pennsylvania's got a divided legislature. Virginia also had a divided legislature. The Senate was controlled by one party. The House was controlled by another. They have legislative rules that allow bills to get very fast attention, move quickly. It's not a partisan game. It's just, it does the bill have merit? If it does, it gets a vote in committee. If it comes out of committee, automatically scheduled for a vote on the chamber floor. And then today, actually today is an interesting day. It's crossover day in several state legislatures. Crossover day is the day when legislatures, there are 13 that do this, you have to finish in the first chamber by crossover day. And those bills go to the other chamber, and they have to be considered in the other chamber. That guarantees that action takes place on bills that have come out of committee, and it means they are far, far more productive than our state legislature.
0: That's one of your biggest criticisms, that in Pennsylvania, leadership the the chairs of committees and uh, the leaders in the different chambers senate and the house have too much power in deciding what actually gets a vote on the floor and that goes back to rules tell us about that
1: yeah so the rules basically there are there are best practice rules and we did a, a pretty deep dive into a a report done by fair vote and the bipartisan policy center back in 2016 they looked at states and said what are the best practices to make sure that these these chambers function collaboratively. If you think if it's a democracy, every legislator should have some say in what moves through the legislature, and there are rules to make that happen. Pennsylvania has none of those rules. So Pennsylvania is at zero, has a zero rating in terms of collaborative policy. And there's nothing that guarantees that the people that we elect have any say at all in, in moving a bill conversely though there are legislators elected by less than 0.5% of the population there's 203 house districts so if you have a committee chair they are elected by less than 0.5% of the population one committee chair can say we're not going to look at any bills on this topic and there are there are chairs that have done that we're not going to look at any gun safety bills we're not going to there were there were quite a few chairs in the last session, who said we're not going to look at any bills introduced by Democrats?
0: That was uh, former Representative Daryl Metcalf. He was
1: one, but there were others. Yeah. And so, last last session, there was exactly one House bill that passed and made it to the governor's desk. One one House bill introduced by a Democrat, and two. Senate bills introduced by Democrats made it to the governor's desk. This is an estate that is basically purple, where half and half, you would think, that those people who are elected to represent us would have more than one House bill make it to the governor's desk. But that's all to do with the rules and the way that one committee chair can have that kind of total control.
0: Is this a Republican-Democrat thing? I mean, uh, Democrats now have a majority, although it's slight, in the Pennsylvania House of Representatives... But still, it doesn't appear that uh, there's a whole lot going on or happening.
1: Well, people are saying it's, it's, it's pretty locked down right now because there are one party in charge of the House, one party in charge of the Senate, and the House majority is very slight. But when you look at recent years, half the bills that were passed unanimously out of the House last session did not get consideration in the Senate that's when the same party controlled both chambers. So half the bills that were passed unanimously in the House got no consideration in the Senate. Half that were passed unanimously in the Senate got no consideration in the House. So it's a very broken system. It has much more to do with who gets credit. has much more to do with who the major donors are for the particular leaders, sad to say. It um, has much more to do with personalities I've met with I've met with legislators who say oh there's nothing wrong with the rules it's all fine and I say but you had some really important bills on this topic that would benefit all of Pennsylvania and they didn't go anywhere what happened he goes oh well that committee chair doesn't like me how is that How is that okay? What is this, elementary school? It is elementary. I've heard, well, that person was dating, you know. Oh, my God. The, are the, you kidding the, me? The stories that you hear are phenomenal. And I've had conversations with people who, who tell me it's all fine. It works the way it should. And then you bring up their particular bill and the stories they'll tell you. Uh, uh, one that really caught my attention, uh, I don't know if it was last. I think it was two sessions. It might have been last session. There was a there was a bill that had the it was like the prime legislative priority of the Pennsylvania Farm Bureau. It was a Clean Streams Act that would Funnel, funnel funding to help um, farmers with their riparian buffers, their buffers to keep, you know, pollution from going into the streams because the Chesapeake Bay, Pennsylvania is a big problem right. for, the Pennsylvania, for the Chesapeake Bay. So this was a top legislative priority for the Pennsylvania Farm Bureau, the Pennsylvania Grange, and the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. This was a bipartisan bill that had strong support. Uh, speaker, then Speaker Brian Cutler, wrote a letter to the editor Asking his colleagues to support the bill because she, the chair of the committee that had that bill, which was Representative Darrell Metcalf, called it welfare for farmers and said, we're not going to give that bill a vote. And so you look and you say, wait, the Speaker of the House. Same party. The same party. The same party whose, whose, whose district is all farmers. Um, has a bill that has the strong support from the Farm Bureau, Chesapeake Bay Foundation, environmentalists across the board, huge bipartisan solution. One committee chair who does not have many farmers in his district says, I'm not interested. And the bill goes nowhere. It's, It's unacceptable.
0: All right. So let's talk about solutions. You talked about rules. You talked about leadership having so much power. What are the
1: solutions? Well, interesting. I, I mentioned that we're looking at Virginia. Virginia was uh, had democratic control of both chambers f- throughout most of the last century. And then in the late 1990s, suddenly the began to change. And by the end of the 1990s, they found themselves with exactly the same... I mean, divided between House and Senate were like 20-20 senators, 50-50 in the House, and nothing was getting done. So they sat down and they said, we need to, we need to rethink our rules. So I mentioned this crossover day. They, they, the way it works in the Virginia legislature, it's a very short legislative session. Uh, they get paid $20,000 per session, um, and it's, it's basically a 30, between 30 and 40 days, depending on the year. Uh, but they, they have a deadline for when they have to introduce bills they have a limit on how many bills they can introduce and then the bills have to be each each committee has to get their bills done and get them out to the house and those have to be passed if they come if they come out of a committee they have to get a vote they're automatically scheduled for a vote on the floor so there's no games there's no favoritism it's just if the committee says this bill has merit it goes to the house floor it gets a vote. If the Senate committee says this bill has merit, it comes out of the committee, it goes to the Senate floor. And then there's a crossover day. So any bill that the House wants attention to, they've got to have it out by that day. They can't do any more House bills after that day. Those bills go to the Senate, the Senate bills go to the House, and then they have to be considered. So they just come, they work them through committee. As soon as they come out of committee, if the committee says yes, it gets a vote on the Senate or House floor. It moves very quickly. They passed over 800 bills last session. So there's, there's some obvious, simple solutions. Just take take that ability for the committee chair to control everything and say let the committee have some say in what gets a vote. If it comes out, take the ability of the leader to say what gets a vote on the floor and just move them forward. Um, so simple changes of rules. Will they ever do that? Who knows? That's the question. All right.
0: <laughs> you were using the word simple, and yeah. I kept myself from shaking yes. my head because what you're talking about would take legislators to do themselves. Yes, Uh, First of all, it surprises me that another legislature did that in Virginia. But why would Pennsylvania's legislature do that?
1: So the only way, you know, when we started Fair Districts PA, I had people tell me, you're wasting your time. There will never be reform of any kind in Pennsylvania. And I said, what do you mean? I mean, never is a big word. Um, And they said, well, leaders will never give up power. We don't have citizen initiative. There are, I think, 23 states that do. Pennsylvania is not one. So we can't just introduce a bill ourselves. We have to go through the legislature. So they'll never give up power. We don't have citizen initiative. And people will never pay attention. And that third one, I thought, you know what? I was a youth pastor. I could get middle school boys to pay attention to talking about the Trinity or, you know, all kinds of strange things. I thought... I, I, let's let's give this a try. Let's see if the people of Pennsylvania will pay attention, because that's the only way that we'll get change, is getting enough people. And we've had over a thousand informational meetings attended by over 40,000 people. We've had 110,000 people sign a petition for redistricting reform. We're working hard to help people understand, but there will not be change in Pennsylvania unless enough citizens pay enough attention and tell their legislators we want is fixed. We're tired of it. And understand, your legislators promise all sorts of things. They don't accomplish it because we have a broken legislative process.
0: All right. Let me bring up an observation. Since 2016, Donald Trump has dominated the news, especially in election years, 2016, 2020, and now 2024. There's been some other national issues that are at the top of the headlines every day. Inflation, wars in the Middle East and Ukraine. Most voters seem to be focused on national issues and even view local issues through the lenses of national issues. There are some exceptions. State government got a lot of attention during the COVID-19 pandemic, but one gets the feeling that the state legislature is getting a pass because everything has become so nationalized.
1: I think people don't realize how much the state legislature impacts them their kids school funding the potholes in their roads we have some real crisis issues going on in Pennsylvania for instance 911 EMS there have been bills to regionalize EMS every session for years there have been Reports kind of shouting, this is a problem that have been given to our state legislature for decades now. And when people dial 911 and nobody answers, they're going to realize we've got to pay attention to our state legislature. Or, for instance, telemedicine, um, nurse practice. There are a number of recommendations to improve health access in rural parts of the state none of those have gotten attention, none of those have gotten a vote. When people try, you know, somebody having a baby and realizes there's no, there's no medical help, I, I'm, I'm two hours from the closest medical help, people will begin to realize state government impacts your life every single day in really, really important ways. And until we have a functional state legislature, we're gonna be losing population, we're gonna be having lives that are not as thriving as they should be, and we've gotta pay attention to state government.
0: So are you saying that it would take a crisis?
1: I'm saying we're near crisis in a lot of areas right now, and people, people who are aware of that are... We've, we've got new volunteers every week. Uh, come join us. Look at FairDistrictsPA.com and find out more. Um, but we do need to pay attention to state government, and we're trying hard to help people do that.
0: I was looking through your website, and you have a number of examples of really what most people would look, look at and say common sense legislation. I'm going to bring one up a bill to require carbon monoxide detectors in daycare centers. Tell me about that bill. What happened to it?
1: That bill goes nowhere. Um, it, we have bills that that are introduced that make total sense, and they come out of committee, and they don't get a hearing on the floor, or they come out of one chamber, they don't get a hearing in the other chamber. That one, the the other one that I pair with that is the is the lead exposure for children. There have been studies on this, recommendations from the studies. The studies are authorized by the state legislature, um, and then and then the bills introduced based on those recommendations go nowhere. But there was a bill to require Testing of children before the age of two, it went all the way through, and then an appropriations committee in the House was changed to suggest rather than require by one 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 person the who didn't like it. The word was
0: encourage, wasn't it?
1: Encourage, but encourage rather than require. Rather than require, <laughs> which which takes any any push, um, it just it, and that's we see that we see either bills are ignored to completely or one very partisan person. We'll just decide we're going to change it a little bit to make it basically meaningless. And then the person who is trying trying so hard to get these done has to start over again. But it's, why?
0: Why would someone be opposed to uh, children under the age of two being uh, tested for blood exposure or uh, a daycare center? that didn't have or wasn't required to have a carbon monoxide uh, detector?
1: This has to do with government overreach. There's a a handful of people who think that asking anybody to do anything is government overreach. And And yet, when you look at some of the bills they support, are government overreach in other directions. And when you look at the cost, societal costs, cost to schools, cost to families, of not doing that proactive work. It's hugely expensive. So there's there's little partisan reasons sometimes and other reasons it has to do with who their major funders are. Um, sometimes it's hard to tell which. And as I said, sometimes it's just I don't like the person who introduced this. Um, lots of sad stories, lots of wonderful legislators in both parties working very hard to get solutions passed and the great disappointment and huge loss of time.
0: I would say that in my experience that most people who run for the state legislature want to do good. Yes.
1: What happens? And
0: we only have about 45 seconds left.
1: Many times they get there and they discover that the solutions that they want to see, um, it's its incredibly difficult. Some choose not to run again. Some just get cynical and just kind of slide along because that's the best they can do. And some keep fighting to get better rules in place. There's some wonderful people on both sides of the aisle trying hard to get this fixed, but they need the public to step up and demand better. So take a look at FixHarrisburg.com. Take a look at FairDistrictsPA.com. Volunteer. Join us. We have some petitions. Sign the petition. The more we can show the public support for change, the more likely it is we'll get real change. All
0: right, real quick. Is the presidential election going to suck all the air out of people paying attention to Harrisburg?
1: We we know that the presidential election is going to take a lot of attention. Our goal is to have a really good bill ready next session and then work hard for the next four years to get that done.
0: Carol Kuhnohom is the chair of Fair Districts PA. Thank you very much. Thank for being you for having today. me. Coming up on the second half of the Spark Weekly... Best-selling author Harry McLean talks about his new book, Starkweather, the untold story of the killing spree that changed America. You're listening to The Spark Weekly. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to The Spark Weekly. I'm Scott Lamar. It seems there's a mass shooting in in America every few weeks. Stories of killing sprees or serial killers are commonplace on TV and in movies and books today. But it wasn't always that way. There had to be a first at a time when multiple murders were new to a broad audience. Best-selling author Harry McLean points to a gruesome series of murders in Nebraska and Wyoming in January 1958, As that point, 19 year old Charles Starkweather, accompanied by his 14 year old girlfriend Carol Ann Fugate, shot and stabbed 10 people to death over an eight day period. In all, Starkweather murdered 11 people. McLean's recently published book is titled Starkweather The Untold Story of the Killing Spree That Changed America. Harry McLean is with us on The Spark today. Mr. McLean, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you very much. I'm pleased to be here.
0: So before we get into the murders themselves, tell us about Charles Starkweather.
2: Charlie was, was uh, the second out of eight children. He was born in 1938 to a poor family in Lincoln, Nebraska. He was slightly under five foot five. He had thick, flaming red hair. He was bow-legged, and he was pigeon-toed and had a lisp. In spite of all that, he bore an uncanny resemblance to to James Dean. But in his childhood, Charlie was ridiculed and mocked mercilessly by other students in his class and throughout the whole school, actually. He was taunted uh, for his red hair, for his bow legs. Uh, People made fun of him when they got up to talk in class. When he got up, he was so traumatized by it all he couldn't speak. This went on till about seventh grade. In seventh grade, <clears throat> it is, he came home one day, and his father saw him in tears and said, what happened? He told him, and he said, look, from now on out, don't put up with it, just smack him. That was the turning point in Charlie's life. Uh, from that point on, he started fighting. I, I'm from Lincoln, Nebraska. My older brother was in school with Charlie and he used to tell about the fights that Charlie got in. He would pick him, he would start him, and he would, by and large, finish him. He would pick on people a lot larger than he was because he had a, an anger or a rage that fueled him to fight way beyond kind of the ordinary bounds of, of schoolyard fighting at that time. If somebody went down, he would, he would kick him, kick him in the stomach, kick him in the head. That, as he grew older, through high school, he developed a real reputation in Lincoln as somebody that you did not fool with. That rage ended up kind of turning into a fantasy uh, as he got into his mid-teens about becoming an outlaw. And um, that eventually was the combination of the rage and this fantasy of being an outlaw with a gang that ended up setting him down this trail to the 11 murders that you just described.
0: Mm-hmm. So Carol <clears throat> Fugate, talk about her, her his 14-year-old girlfriend in
2: 1958. Carol is also, <clears throat> excuse me, quite small. She was uh, under five feet. And at the time of the trial, or trial, she came in at 95 pounds. She was tiny, a tiny kid. And she met Charlie when she had just turned 13. He was 17. And she ran with him for about uh, so about a year and a half until this these incidents took place. She came also from a very, very poor family in Lincoln. She lived in a bad, what we would call the bad side of town. And uh, her dad was a drunk, and he was violent, and he was a pedophile. And Carol ended up, they kept getting kicked out of places. He, he seldom worked, get kicked out of apartments. She went to six schools in five years. So she was very dis- dislocated um, and traumatized by a real rough childhood. Her mother, they got divorced. She finally, her mother married a pretty decent guy who couldn't make much money. But at least they settled down a little bit until she ran in to Charlie Starkweather. She was kind of a sitting duck for Charlie, that's not my phrase. I've, uh, some psychologists use that to describe a girl who has been so traumatized and so treated so badly by the males in her life that she's a sitting duck for someone like Charlie who comes along and says, "You're you're the most important person in my life." So she was 14. She claims to have broken up with Charlie right before the killing spree began, whether that's uh, true or not. They they did break up a lot, like most teenagers. But whether she was done with them or not is is highly uh, un- unclear to me. But she did go on on the uh, spree with Charlie. Her involvement uh, is subject to great debate, in, in which I spend a lot of time dealing with in the book.
0: Mm-hmm. So let's talk about that killing spree, January 21st to January 29th, 1958. <laughs> What happened during that period? I know it's Um, hard to summarize uh, 10 murders, but uh, what happened during that that little over a week?
2: It started with Charlie killing uh, her mother, her stepfather, and her little two-and-a-half-year-old sister in their house. Uh, That was on a Tuesday. And the question is, was carol there for that killing i'll i'll leave that aside but that that's the issue charlie says initially that she wasn't there carol says she wasn't there that she came home and her parents were gone and charlie told them he had a that they were hostages in any event charlie did did kill them that day there's no question about that and he moved him in some out some uh, back house houses houses out beyond the in the yard and um, it was January in, in Nebraska, so they froze to death. And they stayed in the house for six days after that. Uh, they ended up leaving when Carol's grandmother came and claimed if she couldn't get in, she was going to call the police. And uh, so they split, and she did bring the police there. They looked around the house didn't find anything unusual and did not find the bodies. Carol and Charlie moved on um, to a small town called Bennett, about 20 miles south of Nebraska, of, of Lincoln, I'm sorry. And there, they killed a farmer that was a friend of Charlie's, uh, and took his rifles. and um, their car got stuck in the mud. They were picked up by a couple teenagers. Charlie ended up shooting both of them to death with August Meyer, his friend with his 22. Um, that happened late at night. of uh, Actually, Wednesday will be Wednesday morning. They then went uh, to back to Lincoln and in the morning, uh, went into a, the, the house of a very prominent family in Lincoln and killed uh, the husband and his wife and the maid. They then fled. Lincoln heading for the west coast, and were caught in uh, Douglas, Wyoming after they had killed a traveling salesman there to get his car. The big, uh, big chase in, ensued where the cops were chasing Charlie through the badlands, shooting at him. He finally stopped, and uh, they had also picked up Carol by that point, and they put Charlie in arrest, under arrest, and put him in the. Uh, jail in in Douglas, Wyoming. So the reign of terror was over about four o'clock Wednesday afternoon.
0: So the big question that we ask nowadays when there's a mass shooting, and I'm sure the same question came up in 1958, why? Now, there were reasons why, as you describe in the book, there had been a fight amongst uh, Carol Carol Ann's uh, parents, stepfather and uh, mother. Uh, but with the others, why did he
2: kill them? It, it was it was the, this was the kind of the brand new aspect to murders in, in this country. Prior to this, with few exceptions, uh, most murders were involved. Uh, they were domestic incidences or somebody was robbing a bank or there was a disagreement between two people. Charlie introduced the idea of random murders, killing for the sake of killing, for the sake of how it would you know it would make you feel when it was all over. He shot people that he didn't need to shoot uh, and kill people that he didn't need to kill. And this opened the door to what is now, in my view, what is now commonplace, which is the random shooting. Most of the Mass murders that we have today are random. Not all of them are, but uh, most of them are in churches or um, grocery stores or schools where somebody is shooting people that they don't know. And this was the first incident of that, and in, in my view, kind of opened the door to the type of sociopath- sociopathology, which is kill people that you, that you have no grudge against because it will Uh, It will relieve your anger or your illness uh, and make you, in the end, feeling better about being alive.
0: One of the aspects of this that was new in 1958 is television. And this case got national attention. What role did TV play in everyone in the country knowing about this?
2: It played a huge role, and it was the first time that that had happened. By 1958, 85% of the people in the country had had television. Uh, It was mainly news and little sitcoms and, uh, you know, police shows. There there had not yet been coverage of a live violent situation. This happened here, because for for a lot of reasons, one, you had a a young boy and a young girl, kind of like Bonnie and Clyde. Um, You had the murders going on over a series of days which allowed television to hook into it and cover it uh, nightly, Huntley and Brinkley, which were the major newscasters of the day, national newscasters out of New York, covered it every night, I've seen the clips. So, that it, it gradually caught on with the whole country saying, well, they're back in Lincoln, no, they're back in Wyoming, no, they're back in Lincoln, we've got so many killings. And they had just developed the ability for the national networks to connect with their local affiliates in Lincoln. So, the local reporter in Lincoln was, was reporting live around the country. So, the country could see Charlie come out of the courthouse in handcuffs. Um, and it was it was a mesmerizing I've, I've gone back and look at it was a mesmerizing experience and the, the difference the impact was partially because now Charlie and Carol were in your living room they were in your dining room they were alive you could see them and they had pictures of the of the crime itself and it brought a new kind of reality to violence um, for the average citizen in in, in the country. As a matter of fact, it got covered worldwide. There were, there were reporters from London and Japan and France there. But it was the uh, it was the beginning of the unholy alliance between television and violence. Hmm.
0: Starkweather changed his story multiple times, saying that Fugate didn't kill anyone at first. And then he changed his story and said he called her the most bloodthirsty person he ever knew. Why did he change his story so much? It was almost like he was playing with the authorities.
2: Well, I think that's the, there's a couple of explanations, and that's, that's definitely one of them. Charlie confessed to the, all of the crimes right after he was murdered. He even confessed to one that they didn't know about. They didn't connect him with, which had taken place in November of 57. And he just, he just told the details and confessed to all 11 crimes within a, within a couple hours of being arrested. And he said, Carol had nothing to do with it, I'd leave her out of it. And as time went on, he changed each one of those stories and made her deny that she was a hostage and and had her participate in four or five of the murders in one way or another, and very explicitly. uh, Now, if you go back and look at the context and what Charlie was saying, it certainly does look like he was just having fun. Uh, he, would confuse, you know, he, would the he would confuse, he would confuse the prosecutor. would he would confuse the judge because the story would change in mid telling uh, through the whole thing in an uproar. He was completely prepared to die. He, he had no problem going to the electric chair at all. I mean, for him and his fantasy of being an outlaw, that was a, that was a great way to go. But he was going to have fun on the way out. And I think he also, for the fantasy to be complete, he needed Carol to go with him. Uh, you know, the boy and the girl had to both go down for this story to play out the right way in his in his mind. So when he turned on her, and he kept giving more information to the prosecutor during her trial about her level of involvement, what she'd done, and what she said, I think it was because he wanted her uh, to also be subject to the death penalty.
0: Mm. Just think about that, Uh, and you do, you write about this, but in 1958, charging a 14-year-old girl, very petite, as you mentioned, with murder, and she was possibly facing the death penalty, something that hadn't been dealt with before. Much of your book, as you said, focuses on Carol Skewgate. She was only charged with uh, two felonies and found guilty of one. What happened? What, What was she charged with, and what was she found guilty of?
2: Um, the couple that they ended up killing outside of Bennett, Bennett the two teenagers, uh, she, she, both she and Charlie were charged with the same crime, and that was murdering the boy that they killed, and then also the felony murder because they stole money from his wallet um, and, then, and then murdered him. So you had those two charged. They were both involved with the, with the death of, of uh, Bobby Jensen. Uh, Charlie was convicted of both. She was convicted just of the felony murder. There was no indication that she actually killed Bobby Jensen or had anything to do with it, but she did take the money from the wallet and give it to Charlie. So there's the felony, and that's, that's a felony murder. But let me just say, they were so determined to get Carol, the prosecutor, uh, that they had, I've seen the memo, they had the other murders lined up, surely lined up. If they missed on the first one, they were going to charge her with killing Bobby Jensen's girlfriend. If they missed on that, they were going to charge her with killing the maid in the wardhouse. She was going down one way or another. They basically charged her with one that was probably the easiest to prove.
0: If she went to trial today, a conviction wouldn't be certain because of how she was interrogated. Without a lawyer, she was drugged up. Uh, And, you know, we look at that today and say, well, that wouldn't even be called a technicality today. That would be something that uh, under Miranda just wouldn't happen. Right.
2: That's absolutely correct. She was interrogated for kind of depends on how you define the term interrogation. But uh, because she was driven back from from Wyoming to Lincoln and she was talked to during that time period. And she was also formally interrogated uh, on the record. And 14 years old, no sophistication, never outside of Lincoln. She couldn't even tell the difference between a prosecutor and a defense attorney. She keeps at, kind of confusing who is who in the deal. And they have skilled, skilled interrogators there that put her on the record. And uh, that document that ended up coming from her interrogation is what convicts her because she just kind of admitted to what she did in the felony murder. Uh, and without that, they really had no evidence other than what Charlie was saying. Well, you, you simply could not convict anybody on Charlie's testimony because it changed constantly. So her conviction was based on her, uh, on the document resulting from her in interrogation. And, and backing up a little bit, I don't think she would be charged with murder today, not, not at 14, without any direct implication of her having stabbed somebody or shot somebody. Uh, and what we know about where the brain is development-wise for a 14-year-old and the effect of childhood trauma on the brain and the, the ability to make decisions, uh, to flee or not to flee. I, I don't even think, I don't, I don't really think she would be charged at all. I think she would be, I mean, her, her family is now dead. She's got nobody left. And uh, so that's another trauma she had to deal with. But I think, I think today she would be dealt with. Uh, unless they actually had her stabbing somebody or shooting somebody, as as a victim herself,
0: we only have about ninety seconds left. In the book, you conclude that Carol Ann Fugate was actually innocent. Sixty-five years later, how did you do that?
2: Uh, I'm a former judge myself, and I looked at the evidence, the evidence, the facts, not the speculation. Uh, not the guesswork, not the inferences about what she did and what she didn 't do, but the facts the actual facts themselves, and applied trauma psychology to her and uh, as if we were conducting the trial today and what we know about brain science and based on the facts and the trauma psychology applied to her, uh, I would find that she that there, there, there was not sufficient evidence to even charge her, much less to convict her so i would that was the basis for me finding her innocent. I sat as a judge and looked at the facts. Mm-hmm.
0: About 45 seconds, We, she was actually paroled and lived a normal life. She was a model prisoner. You actually met her just a couple years ago when she was in an assisted living facility. What did you take away from that?
2: Uh, it, it was really sad. I mean, when you see Carol uh, and, and you know the story, and I, I, I knew her so well at that point that she's, she, was, she had suffered a stroke and she had been in a car accident. And she's in a nursing home. And she's not doing real well. She can't talk very clearly. Uh, you just say, it's just like she's, she and her life is a tragedy upon a tragedy upon a tragedy. She's a very sad human being looking at, at her entire life and, and where she is now. Hmm.
0: Harry McLean is the author of the new book, Stark Weather the untold story of the killing spree that changed America. Thank you very much for being with us today.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to The Spark Weekly. If you would like to learn more about today's topics, go to WITF.org slash The Spark. I'm Scott Lamar.